This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So in my last talk, I emphasized how we ought to be wary of identifying our good with a peace derived from a stability in our emotions and in balanced passions. Such a view is, at least in its outlines, Epicurean, um, and in modern terms is discoverable in views that promote themselves as views for well-being. But that discussion was aimed at encouraging us not to identify our final good with our emotions. And, but it risks swinging the pendulum too far the other way, such that we are in danger of falling into the temptation of thinking that our emotions ought to be avoided at all costs. This is more of a stoic view of humanity. And oddly enough, today the, uh, there is actually a great danger of people falling into stoicism. Um, it's back in vogue in many circles. You see it coming around on, on various uh, social media platforms and on the internet in different ways. And it's it's popular because it's seen as a way of promoting a kind of mental resilience in the face of trial. It's kind of a, we might use the more Victorian English way of putting it, it's, a, it's the ideal of having the stiff upper lip, um, which can translate in our times as a kind of strong determination to accomplish a task, no matter how difficult that may be, no matter what other people may think. And there is an admiration in people who do those things, who offer, um, who suffer much for the things that they cherish. And, you know, we often associate that with people who sacrifice much for their family or their children, or who even sacrifice a lot of goods for something they're passionate about, like their art or their sport. And so the idea that we are willing to sacrifice everything for a particular stated goal, right, has a strong appeal, such that we cannot help but admire people who have such a focus and a verve in their life. And so this reasoning has stoic undertones to it. Um, for Stoicism is known for its kind of strong indifference. However, I want, and I want to even note that in, in the history of Christianity, in the history of Christian ethics in particular, there, uh, we have taken on many important lessons from Stoic thinkers. And we can read Stoic thinkers and sometimes mistake the things that they are saying as being Christian. But it is, there are some aspects of Stoicism that are deeply anti-Christian in certain ways that we must be aware, must be aware of and be wary of, of appropriating. Certain things can be appropriated, of course, and have been in the tradition, but not all. So one, one uh, aspect of the antithesis between Stoicism and Christianity that I want to highlight is that is the Stoic notion that we ought to see our emotions and our passions as totally indifferent. While it is true that our emotions and passions are not the center of our lives, right? We can't just find peace and happiness when our emotions are balanced. It doesn't mean to say that there's no value to our emotional life. And that our emotional life won't have 
any significance towards our salvation. Presumably, we will have perfected emotions in eternal life. As I reminded us in the previous talk, right, as rational creatures, our passions are infused with rationality. And so even if our happiness consists in some sort of rational activity, that doesn't mean that there are no emotional parts of our happiness as well. Presumably, the happiness of the soul will overflow into the happiness of the body. But if Stoicism is true, there's a tendency to want to exclude emotion from the happy life. And so this talk, I want to highlight how our emotional life does play into ourselves, does play into our need for happiness. So to do that, let's first look at kind of different versions of Stoicism. All right. And we'll begin by looking at ancient versions of Stoicism which is admittedly very difficult to do. Um, because while Epicureanism was a, an important philosophical view in antiquity, Stoicism was wildly popular. And it was, and there we have a lot of writings left from the Stoics. It spanned, the ethical system spanned cent, uh, centuries, and there were developments in it over time. We distinguish between kind of early stages of Stoicism, and then Roman Stoicism. And it's in particular, Roman Stoicism, with its focus on ethics, has had an outsized influence on Western culture. For this, uh, now, so what I'm going to say is, of course, always going to be general, and there are ways in which particular Stoics may be different in one degree or another. So take that with a grain of salt. For the Stoic, though, the ultimate good in life is the life of virtue. Now, obviously, that's not a bad thing to say, right? But we have to understand what the Stoics mean when they say virtue. What virtue amounts for them is um, different than what we generally think of it. This is because the, the Stoics' notion of virtue is based on their, is or is at least um, been shaped by their, by their view of physics. They were materialists, like the Epicureans were, and they were deterministic in their view of the natural world. And so they, they tend to see all physical activity as determined by previous physical activity, although there are some occasions in which they allow for a swerve, and that's where, on their view, you can get a sort of free will. But in general, most of our actions are determined, and we live in a very determined world. And, um, and so among, among the Stoics, especially among the later Roman Stoics like Epictetus and Marcus Aurelius, there is a drive to minimize the importance of the things that we do and the things that we feel. That these things that we do, that we feel, they are indifferent why? Because they are results of natural determinations. They are not up to us. And on this view, right, the things that have importance are the things that are up to us. Anything else that can be explained by previous determined activity is neither good nor bad. It's just indifferent. What we need to discover are the things that are up to us and then to act virtuously. But again, what is virtue in this sense? 
Stoic virtue does not consist in performing any particular kind of activity or even in living a particular kind of life, although some Stoics do note that certain lifestyles are more or less consistent with virtue. What becomes central, especially in the later Stoics like Epictetus, is the idea that I choose or accept to affirm what happens to me. Because on this view in Stoicism, what makes an act good or bad is a human judgment. And so Epictetus says, here are some quotes from Epictetus to give you an idea of what he means by this. He says, remember what a desire proposes is that you gain what you desire. And what an aversion proposes is that you not fall into what you are averse to. Someone who fails to get what he desires is unfortunate, while someone who falls into what he is averse has met misfortune. So if you are averse only to what is against nature, among the things that that are up to you, then you will never fall into anything that you are averse to. But if you are averse to illness or death or poverty, you will meet misfortune. The idea there is that the Stoics will say we must always um, desire the things that are according to nature. But of course, illness, death, poverty, these are according to nature, right? Because all nature means on this account is what the universe is determining to happen. So So if illness or death is determined to happen to you or to others, then that is according to nature and you should desire it. Epictetus says a little later, what upsets people is not things in themselves, but their judgments about things, right? So we are upset when we judge something to be bad. So if we judge what happens to us to be good, we will not be upset about it. He says a little later on, what then is your own, your way of dealing with appearances? So whenever you are in accord with nature in your way of dealing with appearances, then be joyful, since then you are joyful about a good of your own. Now, this sounds nice from a distance, but remember, what is your own on the Stoic view? The only thing that is your own is your ability to accept or to deny what is happening to you. Some of these sayings are very attractive on the surface. Because it presents to us a view, right, that can make us resilient in the face of terrible wrongs, terrible tragedies, by using some clever mind over matter techniques. But when we take it to its extreme, it becomes more and more creepy. Essentially, what the Stoic sage must do is never judge anything to be bad. And we do this by not desiring anything other than what actually happens or being averse to anything that may harm or hurt us in the world. These things all happen according to nature, even if they are done with the bad intent of another person. They happen in accordance with nature. And if we do not judge them to be bad, then they will not be bad for us. In other words... We must seek to separate ourselves from our passions to the point 
where we are totally indifferent to what we feel or undergo, and so that we can affirm them as being natural and therefore as being good. And so for the Stoic, virtue consists in this unyielding judgment that all the actions that happen in the world are natural and therefore good. This here, of course, should make us pause. You know, we Christians, of course, believe that God has divine providence. He has control over the universe. He guides it towards its good. But we would never say that he explicitly wills things that we see and understand to be evil. There are evil actions in the world. And so we make a distinction in Christianity between God's explicit will and his permissive will. And so that God always explicitly and actually uh, wills only good things, but he permits evil things to happen because he sees and knows how he will bring an even greater good out of it. But the point of that is that on the Stoic version, everything that happens is good. On the Christian version, there are things that are bad that happen just that we trust and we know that God is going to bring something even greater, some even greater good, despite the evil that occurs. And so if we take that into mind, then we realize how radically different Stoicism actually is from Christianity. So with that in mind, then, let's turn then to uh, the emotions uh, in, in particular to see how this really, how this cuts even deeper into problems. For in the Stoic view, we must learn to separate ourselves, ourselves being whatever it is that is able to make the free choice. We have to cut ourselves off from our emotions as much as possible so that we no longer desire pleasant things or to have anything outside of our explicit control. Instead, we are to learn to desire that all things be the way that they are, and to treat the world as indifferent, to treat even our lives as indifferent. And this means being indifferent to the suffering and death, even of those whom we are called to love. Yes, Stoics will help people who are in trial. Yes, these, those can be good things to do. But we are not to cry when those whom we love die and fade away. So on the Stoic view, emotions are indifferent and in a way meaningless. And we ought to pay as little attention to them as possible and focus only on those things that are in our control, which boils down to the ability to accept what happens to us as natural and to be at peace with that. Okay. But are there modern versions of this? That's more of the ancient version, especially the late Roman version of what Stoicism is. But can we see that there is a Stoic tendency in popular culture today? And I would say that there are two ways in which, two general ways, there are many ways, but there are two general ways in which we can see a more direct effect, I think, on our popular culture. And the first is a way in which, especially popular ethics, focuses and overemphasizes intention and intentionality. Because, of course, in, in Stoic ethics, it's all about what we can affirm or deny. And so the intention of the mind is in the driver's seat of, of virtue. 
And so the popular imagination tends to think that there are no objectively good or bad actions. There are only good or bad intentions, which is a bit different than what the Stoics and what the Stoics understand, right? But you can see how there might be a link between Stoicism and this idea that intentions are the only things that can be good and bad. And so the idea in the modern perspective, right, is that a person's intention becomes all important for determining whether such an action is good or bad. And we judge intentions based on sincerity. If it's a sincere intention, then it's good. If, it's, if somebody is being hypocritical, that is bad. And there's an added layer to this complexity, of course, because our intentions in our modern perspective also send, tend to be wrapped up in our emotions. Right? We can distinguish intentions from emotions, but very often we, we see kind of deep-seated um, and not fully controlled emotions as being intentional, as being our deepest intentions, maybe our deepest selves in certain circumstances. And this is largely a result of our society's uh, like, you know, tendency to, towards reductionism, that we can reduce mental activity to brain activity. And oftentimes we can reduce brain activity to, as in and describe brain activity in terms of emotion. And so, um, you know, we can, and so it can be hard to pull apart intentionality from our emotional reasons for why we do one thing or another. And because of that, it seems really hard to see how a person could ever be virtuous. Because if it's all about intentions and our intentions are wrapped up in our emotions, how can we know that our emotions are pure? So think about just a typical example. Let's say that, you know, we want to, uh, we want to buy a homeless person a meal. So we'd say, well, you know, I feel bad for this person, so I have a good intention of wanting to give concrete assistance to him. But when I do so, I then feel this very deep satisfaction. Yes, aren't I so good? I've just done something for this poor person who can't help himself, right? Then we can ask, well, wait a minute, what's our intention? Was our intention to help the person? Or was our intention to feel good about ourselves? If intentionality is wrapped up in emotionality, that's even a word, but I'm going to use it anyway. If our attention is wrapped up in our emotions, right, then it's really hard to distinguish which intention or emotion is actually governing why we do things. Most of us would want to say, well, maybe it's a little bit of both, right? But we can't help but think that maybe the selfish desire was really the governing one. Right, because I like how I feel when I give to when I give good things to others, and so on. This so because of this difficulty of distinguishing our intentions from our emotions, in a in a bizarre kind of turn of events, our emotions right um, kind of prevent us prevent any of our actions from actually being good, and they tend to be bad insofar as they tend towards selfishness. Right, if we generally think that selfish actions are not really good actions. And so if we always have selfish intentions, how is it possible for us to ever do anything good? 
How is it even possible to grow in virtue if the most deep-seated desires that we can barely have control of are in fact our governing intentions? So there's, there's a big doubt about whether or not we can be virtuous if our emotions are so tied up in our intentions. Now, there's a way in which we try to correct for this, and this is another way that I think Stoicism ends up um, influencing in an indirect way a lot of things that we perceive and we, we think are right in society. And it's, it's regarding the idea of altruism, right? So something is truly altruistic if we, it costs us something, essentially. Right? If we want to do something that's truly good, it should be something that we do not benefit from, something that we don't even benefit from emotionally. Um, and so it, it's an attempt to try to purify our intentions by getting rid of any selfish or self-serving motives or feelings. And so this is, again, that stiff upper lift, lip, lip kind of, excuse me, stiff upper lip kind of altruism, such that I do things because they are, because they are good, not because I gain anything from them, not because I feel like it's any good. And if I lose something important as a result of it, then I've definitely done something good and virtuous, right? So the more it hurts you, the better it is. It's a little bit, a little bit of an exaggeration, but not much. And so on this view, virtuous actions are possible, but they're not exactly good for you. And one glaring problem that results from this is, of course, that it takes away almost every motivation for doing good. Emotions and passions are actually meant naturally to motivate us to do actions. But if the only way to do a good action is to do something that is contrary to our good or to our emotions, we begin to lose the motivating um, principles behind what we do. It requires an extreme detachment from my own good. And um, we can see this in, in um, kind of stories, movies, or plays where a person gives up something of supreme importance for the sake of others. And in, in religious contexts, uh, this is often portrayed uh, as giving up the possibility of heaven and going to hell so that others can be saved, right? This is conceived of as, as the ultimate sacrifice. Um, I think it's, there's a weird like Keanu Reeves movie called, I think, Constantine, where he's this kind of bizarre version of an exorcist. Um, and like the end of the movie is him giving up his soul, right? So that other people can be saved. And then ironically, he's, his soul is saved as, as a result of it, right? But it's the idea that I give up even my own salvation so that others can be saved. In the English tradition, um, after, after kind of Protestantism had, had come into vogue in England, there arose this very bizarre tradition of the sin eater, right? What happens if somebody dies with grave sins and you can't go to confession? Well, it turns out there's there in some traditional parts of England, there is a person whose job was to go and to go to the uh, to visit the corpse of the dead person. And they would often lay some sort of food or bread on top of uh, of the corpse that would soak up the sins. And then the sin eater would eat it and take upon himself the sins of the one who had died. 
doesn't sound so great for the sin eater. I've got to be honest with you. But right, and and so this this seems very wrong. And and for those of us who believe, of course, seems clearly inspired by the devil, who wants to corrupt even our good intentions. Um, in order to capture us in his webs of evil. We have to remember, and the church insists on this, and it's a very important thing to remember, that we can never do evil to accomplish good. But this radical version of altruism does make it seem like we can do evil to accomplish good, as long as the good belongs to others, even if the evil belongs to me. And this view is not only foolish, but nonsense, for a good God would not make such a requirement of us. And I think, though, again, I think that this tendency towards ultimate sacrificial altruism has its source in the Stoic idea that I must be indifferent to my emotional life. It's extreme. It's very downstream. There's a lot of developments. But I do think it has this source in the Stoic ideal of indifference. Okay. So in Christianity, then, what this reminds us is that even though we need to make sure that we develop in virtue um, in such a way that we can control our passions, it doesn't mean that our passions are indifferent to us. And in fact, in Aristotle, right, the difference between um, the continent person and the virtuous person is that for the virtuous person, his or her passions align with the goods that, that he or she wants to do, right? In the continent person, he or she does the good, but sometimes desires to do evil things, right? So that growing in virtue in Aristotelian virtue theory, but in Christianity as well, is an alignment of our passions with our ultimate good, with the good of happiness. And so while altruism cannot be selfish, that doesn't mean that altruism is going to be contrary to my good. Uh, in fact, the best kind of altruism, the best sort of good gifts that we give to others are those in which others can share and in which the sharing of these goods increases them rather than diminishes them. We call these common goods. So a good like this would be the good of knowledge, the more people know something, it doesn't devalue knowledge, it just increases it. The good of friendship, it requires two people in order to exist and can expand when more people enter into the friendship or into different friendships. And ultimately, the ultimate common good is God himself. We share in God himself and there is, and no matter how many people share in the good of God, it never diminishes God, but rather God's reach reaches out to as many people as desire him. And so while the pursuit of virtue does require of us a strong discipline, and discipline that may, on occasion, look like Stoic discipline, we should never be misled into thinking that our passions are always evil and never part of the virtuous life. Our passions are part of us. We are our passions in a way. Um, and that when we are true, when we have grown into true virtue, our passions and our desire for, and our desire and knowledge of the good will all be aligned and ordered us and order us towards God. So things that are pleasurable can be good. 
And we know that when we achieve the ultimate good in God, we will be pleased indeed with a pleasure that flows from happiness found in union with God. On the Thomistic account, and in Christian moral theory in general, the virtuous person, right, again, is not one without emotions, but one who has rightly ordered emotions, passions directed away from the passing things of the world towards God himself. And if you'll indulge me in a lengthy quote from St. Thomas's Summa Theologiae, we can see this. He says in, in Prima Secundae, question 35, article 4, he asks whether pleasure can ever be the measure or rule by which we judge something to be morally good or evil. And his answer is, yes, pleasure can be, but in a very narrow and particular way. He says, moral goodness or malice depends chiefly on the will. And it is chiefly from the end that we discern whether the will is good or evil. Now, the end is taken to be that in which the will reposes or finds rest. And the repose of the will and of every appetite in the good is pleasure. And therefore, man is reckoned to be good or bad chiefly according to the pleasure of the human will. Since that man is good and virtuous, who takes pleasure in the works of virtue, that man is evil, who takes pleasure in evil works. So that's St. Thomas. So pleasure is not antithetical to virtue, to virtue, but rather the truly virtuous person will enjoy and find pleasure in doing the good. And so this is an important motivator to continuing down the road of virtue. Because the more we live virtuously, the more we will find pleasure in the things of God and in the things that are truly good. That being virtuous doesn't just mean doing good things, but learning to love them, to love them for the love of God. Um, and so... Uh, what this means is that our lives are complete in goodness when our emotions follow upon a good will, which is directed by the intellect towards that ultimate good, a good that can be found in God alone. So I'm going to kind of conclude here. So in the previous talk, I tried to show how our emotional life is not definitive of our good, nor is it definitive of who we are. But in this talk, I also wanted to point out how this doesn't mean that our emotional life is unimportant or even antithetical to our good. Not at all. While we are not identified with our emotions, our emotions are a central part, are real parts of who we are. And just like we need to learn to make good decisions, we also need to learn to desire good things, to reinforce those good decisions. And in this way, we become good in a sense of wholeness, not just in one part of ourselves, but in all of ourselves. And so while we may not be our emotions, our emotions are nevertheless part of us and an important part of us. And therefore, they're going to be part of our good, both in this life and in the life to come. The key is to desire only those things that lead to God and to eternal life. And then we will truly find rest and peace. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So, you talked about altruism. Um, do you still 
think in your kind of definition or description of altruism. So that is actually still altruism. It seems to me what you're actually saying is that there's like a, there's an external good that we're both sharing in that I'm necessarily like take pleasure in or like that I enjoy in myself, which kind of destroys the whole concept of like selfless giving. Mm -hmm. Right? So like is that even I guess my question is is that even altruism at this point or is like is this something else like charity of us just sharing in the good? And okay. if then maybe can we just do away with the term? So good. So the question is right. If in if my definition of altruism is true, then it seems like I can have, I can have true pleasure in it. But doesn't that contradict the notion of a selfless act that we normally associate with altruism? And I would say, um, yes. Insofar as altruism does have a different definition today than than uh, we would traditionally have thought of charity and good acts. But we we also though tend to at least in in common discourse, bring together the notion of Christian charity with altruism. So I'm trying to also pull them apart. So if by definition, by, by definition, we say that altruism is doing a good in which we do not benefit or enjoy for the sake of others, then that is contrary to what we're saying. But if by altruism, I mean, we mean a certain like Christian sense of altruism and doing something for their good, then the fact that we, that you are doing something giving to somebody a good that you can and do hopefully share in, then it's not, then uh, I would say that's a different sense, but probably a truer sense of altruism. And um, a lot of what's behind at least the common notion of altruism is the idea that we have to act unselfishly. So I tend to think of selfishness in this sense as a selfish good is a good that only I can possess, and when I possess it, others don't. So it's like a zero-sum game. But if it's a common good, it's it's inherently, at least if uh, the more common it is, it's not selfish because it's not possessable only by one person, right? And so if it's something that necessarily requires others to share in, um, and that and that, in fact, if it's an even greater common, the greater the common good, the more people can and should share in it, then it's not really selfish, even if I, in my, self, in my selfness, enjoy it. So, so there, is, there is definitely some tension there. And it um, and, and, and just ultimately goes down to how are you going to define altruism? And I would like to define it differently so that we can really talk about what it means to do a good action. But I'm willing to give up the word too. So, mm -hmm. um, so I imagine you know in the in performing a good act, one can have an intention or, or take pleasure in uh, that's rightly ordered and right at, or disordered. So, how would one differentiate between the pleasure in taking in a good act, but such as an act of charity? How would one be able to differentiate whether the pleasure they take in that act? Is for a disordered reason or an ordered reason? Good question. So, you know, the question was whether or not uh, if we have multiple desires that are being fulfilled by a, by, a, by a particular act, how can we just tell whether or not we're being selfish or, or desiring appropriately? And I think the, is that about right? Yeah. So I think that um, to some degree, it's almost impossible to tell. It's difficult to tell um, in this life. 
So that's why when we talk about, when we look at the Christian moral life, we focus more on end object and circumstances when we are trying to evaluate the moral goodness of an action. So what is the end or the object that we aim at? Is it good? And then the action is good, even if our motivations are are impure, right? So maybe the circumstances of, of our of our motivations are so poor that they vitiate the action, right? That's possible. But I think you seem to be more worried about like when it's the case that, you know, we really do want to do something good, but we do have this conflicting desire that seems to take away from the pure goodness of the action. And I would say the action could still be good because it's all rightly ordered and that you do have at least some good emotions, but just because you're not perfectly good yet, Right doesn't mean that the actions themselves are not rightly ordered or rightly ordering you. Because part of what we're doing in this life, too, is learning how to order, our, how to have our passions ordered. And on this side of paradise, it's, it's uh, basically impossible to do that perfectly. Right. But um, so it, that's why I say it's going to be hard to figure it out. But we also shouldn't have to worry about it, um, because if we accept that, you know, there might just be parts of us that are going to be ultimately that still need to have healing. And then we bring them to God and ask for that healing. Um, so you define uh, virtue in ancient stoicism as sort of like going with the flow, more or less. Um, or accepting that you're going to go with the flow. Yeah. Regardless, you're not going kicking and screaming, but you're going willingly. Yeah, kind of a certain complacency. Um, but... Uh, so is that virtue the same virtue we're talking about when you're talking about modern stoicism, or is that... What, 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 oh, it's definitely different. I meant it to be a little bit different. Yeah, is that more of the sort of pleasure-focused um, uh, uh, virtue, or what, what exactly is virtue then in um, modern stoicism? So if modern stoicism has has accepted the importance of emotions, right? Is that what you're saying? Then what is virtue on the modern stoic? Yeah. So it's more of, it seems to me that whatever your passion, whatever your passions are, you are resilient in the face of, of um, trials. So like, it seems to me that, you know, the cowboy, the independent cowboy might be a good example of a stoic figure, right? One who has a task that that he wants to get done and he goes and he does it right um, no matter what gets in his way or the superheroes like the marvel characters that sort of thing um, and so there's there is more room for emotions in it but i think that the modern version and, and i could be wrong about this but at least to my mind this seems to be uh, a corruption of stoicism this admiration for those who will undergo anything to complete a task right um, so now there are there are some uh, kind of popular things that that tend more towards classical stoicism. We might see this in kind of the popularity of Zen Buddhism in the 90s or something like that, you know, um, because, you know, Zen Buddhism has a lot of similarities with, uh, with stoicism. So in those trends, we do see a more classical appreciation for stoic values. So um, if the, if our motivation for good acts can be rooted in the pleasure which we derive from them, we have rightly ordered desires. It does it in the Christian, uh, Christian tradition, tradition, does it still remain that ultimately the ultimate um, like re reason by which we do a good act is merely its justice? 
um, and that that uh, that the pleasure we derive from it should still be a secondary reason, merely to that fact that it is just. Yeah. So um, let me see how how to phrase that. Would the would the question then be? Um, if we can desire the good for its own sake, is the good add anything to the, does the desire add anything to the good? Like, Well, so, so like you, you talked about how like we don't have to do things in like spite of the fact that yeah. it drives us pleasure, but like ultimately, let's say in a, a work of charity, um, you know, giving money to the poor yeah. uh, drives me pleasure. Um, but, but should my ultimate reason for doing that ultimately still be, well, Okay. Yes, it arrives me pleasure, but it's ultimately still the round is because it's because of the just. end. Yeah. All right. So the question is: so we should be doing things because they're just or they're good, but if we desire them, is that desire still rooted in the fact that the thing is just or good? Would that be more like what you're saying? So if it, you know, remember what Sister Anna was talking about with the uh, passions yesterday. As I'm moving away from the microphone, and you're not going to be able to hear this, but that's okay. Right, we talk about how passions are somewhat, um, right, they are active, but they're also passive, right? And they're passive with respect to an object. So ultimately, the just justice of an action can be, actions can be an object on this view, right? There's a purpose or a reason why we do things, okay? So then, the, if, if the passion is rightly ordered, then it is stirred by the object. So it's ordered towards the object, and it's precisely because it desires it that then it creates pleasure. So in a way, right, if you have rightly ordered passions, they can't help but be motivated by the object of those actions, right? Um, now, sometimes it's easy to confuse what passion exactly it is that we are being pleased by, but if you have rightly ordered passions, they are ordered towards a particular object and can't help but be um, motivated by that object and by the justice of that object. Does that help? Mm -hmm. So, so the the like the origin of the good act is justice, which elicits the pleasure, rather than the that's right the pleasure, which elicits the justice. Exactly. So, mm -hmm. I I think it's kind of like a two part question. In the last talk, you mentioned that um, like when people come to you and they say, like, I'm having a hard time believing, and this idea of, like, um, putting away for a second, like, um, maybe the desire to, like, the passion, I guess, to not go to Mass or to mm -hmm. lose that feeling that comes with belief in order to attain the higher good of, like, faith. Um, and then also that um, a lot of people, like, maybe they have a desire to go teach, and so that helps them go into, like, a monastery or... Mm -hmm. Content. So, to what extent do we like follow the passions? Let me see if I can if I can articulate this. It's so. Last time I talked about how it's important in faith to even kind of make sure that we go to mass and do those things, um, and the fact that we go to mass and do things, um, even if we don't feel like doing do good things, even though we don't feel like doing them, is of course a sign that um, we have faith, even if we can't feel it. And yet sometimes people are motivated to enter into the faith or enter into religious life because of something that they're passionate about. Is that what you'd say? Yeah. Okay. So my, one of my student masters said, I had a few of them. One of my student masters said to like to say to us, uh, you know, brothers, the reasons why you enter are not the reasons why you stay. 
and I think that that's a helpful thing to recognize, is that God will use even some of our impure passions um, in order to draw us closer to himself. So maybe you have a passion for teaching, but you know maybe you won't be teaching what you want. Maybe the people that you're teaching with really irritate you, right? You know, but yet God has called you to this particular teaching order, right? So that the point of religious life is to grow in holiness. And you, you eventually have to learn, of course, that the reasons why you stay are to grow in holiness, despite, uh, despite you know, whether or not you're still passionate, the reasons why you entered are still passionately there. And so in a way, right, it's similar to what I was saying last talk, because the reason why we undergo uh, you know, the dark night of the soul is to purify our faith so that it has as its direct object God alone. And likewise, when it comes to motivation to enter more deeply into religious life or into, into the practice of the faith, right, our motivations are motivations are purified and sometimes even shift so that the reason why we started is not the is not exact doesn't have the same shading as the reason why we stay. And we but when we stay, we realize, oh, ultimately there was a desire to serve God or to be with God or to find holiness in God. And if everything else is taken away but that, it's worth it. And that's how the kind of purification process happens. Does that make sense? Yeah. So. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not really, I think, the one I thought, but you're talking about like the dark night of soul. Mm -hmm. You briefly said something about the three stages of spiritual life. Yeah. Can you like a brief overview? So. <laughs> Can I give you a brief overview of the three stages of the spiritual life? Sure. Um, we talk about the three stages. There's the purgative stage. The, uh, how do you spell it, illuminative? Two L's, one M. Two L's, one M. Um, and then there's, then there's the unitive. Something, you know, there are different names for these. But the idea is that in the purgative, now it's weird. We talk about these three stages of the spiritual life um, but they're not really separate. It's more like, rather than being like separate stages where you kind of move, um, you move from one to the other. I really should have turned these around. Um, but it's more like a pyramid that they're built on top of one another. Here, pull that out a little farther. Okay. <laughs> so that the purgative stage, right, is a beginning, but when you move on to the illuminative stage, you don't leave the lessons of the purgative stage behind, but rather they become, you know, they're they are built upon. There's a greater purification in the illuminative stage. So the purgative stage is all about kind of ridding ourselves of our, of our sinful tendencies, and especially, of, especially certainly grave and mortal sins. Um, but in general, our desires, even our desires for sins, uh, are going to be purified at that stage. And so then you have between the purgative stage and the illuminative stage, you have the dark night of the senses. And so that's a purification of our sensual desires so that we learn to live more in the faith and to desire things for God alone. And then in the illuminative stage, you are growing in knowledge and love of God. You're growing in faith. You're coming to see him more clearly. Um, and then in the, in the unitive stage, right, there's this, there's between the unitive and the illuminative stage, the dark night of the soul, where even our faith 
seems to be taken away from us for a little bit so that we can't see God. We, you know, and This is dramatically seen in the life of St. Teresa of Avila, but also in the life of Mother Teresa of Calcutta, who didn't feel faith for decades, but yet lived the life of faith and saw the life of faith as the guiding star of her life, God himself, um, despite that lack of feeling or even of seeing. And so that would then purify her so that she could, uh, both the saints and all the saints that go through this, so that they can enter into union with God. So sometimes this is described in terms of an exchange of hearts. Sometimes it's described in terms of a mystical marriage. But there's some sort of profound blending of the will and the love with God in the person at that stage. Um, There's a lot more to go through. But, you know, that's at least those are the outlines. Very good. Thank you, All right.